Our second reading is from <clears throat> excuse me, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. Vince Lombardi, the famed uh, historic coach of the Green Bay Packers, who won multiple NFL championships and the first two Super Bowls, Hall of Famer in his career. He was famed for starting the season in a very unique way. He would start the very first practice of the preseason with all these gigantic men standing around him. Now, these men were afraid of Vince Lombardi because he was a man of passion and he expected the most out of them. And on that first moment of practice, Lombardi took a moment to stare into the eyes of all the men in the room, each one of them shaking in their, in their, in their boots, in their cleats, as he stared at them. And Lombardi says famously, Gentlemen, this is a football he started with the basics. Gentlemen, this is a football. They've been playing it since they were kids. Gentlemen, this is a football. Back to the basics at the beginning of each season. Because he knew that if they lost sight of the basics, they would lose sight of what it takes to get them to the goals that they were after. This summer, this summer at Christ Church Vienna, we are back to the basics. We're back to the basics in the sense that we are going to be going back to the gospel again and again and again. 
So as you came in, you might have picked up one of these bookmarks that's titled Gospel Driven. And what you'll see is that over the next 13 weeks, 14 counting today, we're looking at some of the most clear statements of the gospel message in the letters of Paul. And what we're asking everyone to do as you see this is to spend the week reading the passage we're going to be looking at upcoming. So read next week's passage, and don't just read it once, read it again and again. If, if you've never been in the practice of having devotions, here's a simple way to start. Look at what next week's passage is and read it. Read it twice. Think about it. Meditate on it. Try and figure out what it's saying. Journal about it. And then even maybe, maybe set about to memorize one of these passages this summer. Or if not, one of these passages on the backside is a list of memory verses. You could do far worse than memorizing two or three of these, if not all 14 or 13. And then what I want us to do is discuss these together. Discuss these basic gospel passages together. We're going to do that in a couple of ways. One is, for those of you who are media savvy, to be on Facebook and to post comments on the Christ Church Vienna Facebook page where we're going to list the, the upcoming week's passage and invite you to share your comments, insights, questions. We're not looking for brilliance. We're looking just for you to share your own thoughts so that we can be a part of this discussion together. And if you have Facebook or uh, electronic media phobia, feel free instead to use the card that we're providing each week where on the back side, you can see a little section for you to take home with you, if your kids haven't already curled it up, and journal in there your own thoughts. You can either email those thoughts to me, later on post them to Facebook, or drop this in the offering plate the next week so that we can be collecting the corporate thoughts of this church body as we meditate on the gospel message. What I want us to do this summer is to dwell in the gospel. Take up residence in the gospel. Make your home in the gospel. The place you eat, drink, and sleep is the basic gospel message. Now, we probably need to take a moment to define the gospel simply before we unpack it the rest of this summer. On one level, Christians talk about the gospel, and they talk about the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. That's a book of the Bible. That's a title, a name of the book. It's the the account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus written by Matthew or Mark or Luke. But when we're talking about the gospel this summer, we're talking about it as the summary of the Christian faith. It is, as many of you have heard, the word gospel means good news. It's the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And in that sense, the gospel is the very heart of Christianity. As some of you have heard said, the gospel is not just the basics as in ABCs of Christianity. It's the whole thing. It's the A to Z. So when we talk about getting back to the basics, I don't want us to think about getting back to the basics like you think about learning how to read and write. You start with the ABCs, and then you start learning basic reading, and then you master higher level reading, and then maybe you practice writing, and eventually, eventually, you become Shakespeare or Dostoevsky or, you know, an 11th grader who can write an essay. The gospel is not the basics that we build on and leave, like you leave the ABCs. Rather, the gospel is the heart and center. It's needed for life, like the sun or oxygen or water. 
You don't get away from them. You need them. All, all growth, spiritually speaking, all wisdom, spiritually speaking, all discipleship as a follower of Christ is found in the gospel. I had to learn that. I would say 20 years ago, I was a very devoted follower of Jesus Christ, but I had the assumption that I needed to move on beyond the gospel message. I I feel bad for my youth group leaders and young life leaders back when I was in high school because when they simply were presenting the gospel, I was bored. See, I had mastered that by age 14, and by age 16 or 17, I was ready for thicker stuff, for more meaty stuff for stuff of spiritual giants. But in reality, the further I got from appreciating the gospel message, the more my religiousness increased, the more my superiority rose, the more my sense of self-righteousness and disdain for others who still needed the gospel message. You see, the further we get from the gospel, the more we grow in religiousness not in grace. So we're going to go back to the gospel again and again. And my hope is this, the gospel should be the sort of thing that we go back to in order to shape our perspective on life, to change our values, to reorient our aims in life, to change our self-understanding. The gospel should be what we go back to when we're trying to see how to face success or deal with failure. It's how we understand and deal with our own sin and guilt. When we go back to the gospel message again and again, it becomes our source of meaning in life, our sense of joy, and our sense of hope. And so what I want us to do is to ask this sort of question. What exactly does the gospel mean? What are its implications for my life? And how can we apply it? So if you're here this summer... It's a great time if you are a doubter or a seeker trying to figure out whether you buy into this Christianity thing because we're going to be talking about it again and again at its most simple level. If you are somebody who has been in church for a long time but maybe has never really grown in your faith or you've been stagnant for a while and desire to grow, this is a great summer for you to go back to the gospel. And if you are one of the two or three of us who are spiritual giants in this room, Going back to the gospel is exactly what we need to humble us, to cause us to rely on the grace of God again, to reorient us towards Christ crucified. So that's what we're going to do. Let me reread the passage that is the centerpiece of our reading this morning. It's the very beginning of the book of Romans, Paul's first letter in in the Bible, in the canonical Bible, the way it's laid out. Paul addresses the Romans, and then he gets to his thesis statement, the the prime reason he's writing Romans, and he summarizes everything he's going to explain in these verses, 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So as a starter this morning, we're going to break apart this passage. And 
help us to think through the different aspects of the way that the gospel might play into our lives and set us up for what we're looking to do the rest of this summer. I want to start with one of the key phrases in here. And many people consider this the key phrase in all of the book of Romans and all of Paul's theology. It talks about the righteousness of God. It says the gospel, in it, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So the first thing that we see about the gospel is it's the way to know God. It says God is revealed in the gospel. But we have to understand that this is God being revealed to us, not knowing God as I want to know him, or I like to think of God as. This is telling us there's a way to know God, and it is in the gospel. And specifically, it's not just some idea about God, it's specifically the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Now, this word righteousness is is a very, very weighty term in, in Old Testament and New Testament understanding. In the Greek, it's this word, I'm going to try and impress you with my Greek, it's dikaiosune. Now, dikaiosune can mean righteousness, or holiness, or faithfulness, or being just, or justice, or even judgment. And, and to really summarize it, it's being right or made right. So all these things are combined in this idea of righteousness, or the righteousness of God. So how does the gospel reveal the righteousness of God? Well, in a few weeks, we're going to be looking at Romans 3, and we'll unpack that a little bit more then. But just right now, let's looking at what God does in revealing his righteousness through the gospel. If the gospel is what God has done in Jesus Christ, here's some of what we see, and this is only some of it. First, God is righteous, and we are not. But secondly, God writes us with himself through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, so that we now, by faith, can be right with God through Jesus Christ. Let me make this example a little bit uh, more clear. I, I'm going to need a volunteer. Cameron, you look like the one I want. Come here. So the righteousness of God works something like this. I'll be God. Cameron will be humanity. So God according to the righteousness of God, is righteous, holy, just. Man is not. But God, through his son Jesus Christ's death on the cross, extends his righteousness to us so that we can be righted to him. So that when when man receives the offer of the cross... He, by faith, is made righteous through the righteousness of God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Thanks, Cam, for volunteering, that is. The idea of righteousness as drawn from the Old Testament is a relational concept It's the act by which God brings people into relationship with himself. And if we were going to summarize exactly what is being talked about in Paul's phrase, the righteousness of God and the gospel being seen in it, it's basically who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And in that sense, 
the gospel is also the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way. He says the gospel, in verse 16, is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. You know, there's power in what Christ accomplished on the cross. It's the power to right all wrongs, to fix what ails us, and to fix what ails the entire world. On the cross, Jesus Christ defeats evil. On the cross, Jesus deals with our sin before a holy and righteous God. On the cross, Jesus confronts death and in his resurrection offers us life. See, in all these ways, the gospel is the power of God to fix all things. But the power of the gospel is not just this grand historic redemption salvation thing. It's also personal rescue. Romans 10 tells us we come to faith because we hear the gospel proclaimed to us and we believe. And many in this room have heard the gospel message and believed. And what it feels like or what it looks like is an aha moment for many of us. It's when the the switch is flipped and we no longer are just hearing religious talk or churchiness. The gospel becomes clear. We get it for the first time. Because the gospel message has power to give life. has the power to save us. In a very real example of this, one of the commentaries I was reading by Ben Witherington retold the story from another professor named Fred Craddock of a female student who experienced the power of the gospel. This is how the story goes. Fred Craddock, a New Testament professor at Emory University in Atlanta, tells the story of a young female student who came into his office completely dumbfounded. She explained she was not a Christian and had never attended church, but there came a time in her life not too long ago when she reached a very low point and she thought about committing suicide. She climbed up onto a high bridge and was ready to jump into the river below. And before she let go and jumped in, something came into her mind. It was this phrase, my life is not my own. I have been bought with a price. She climbed back down. She went into the office of Dr. Craddock, a New Testament professor, and said, help me to understand what's happened to me. He began to ask her questions. Are you sure you've never read the Bible? Oh, yes, quite sure I've never read the Bible. Are you sure you never went to church? Yes, I never went to, well, I guess there was once when my grandmother took me to her vacation Bible school at her church when I was little. What did they have you do at that vacation Bible school? Well, I remember them telling us to write sentences on a little piece of paper and we had to memorize it. I guess they were Bible verses. Dr. Craddock said, you were quoting from 1 Corinthians when you stood up there. 
The Holy Spirit gave life to the power of the gospel, the message that was implanted in your head, so that when you were standing there ready to jump off, you remembered the truth of the gospel. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. My life has been bought by Jesus Christ crucified. The gospel came into your head at the right moment and has literally saved you. I'm not sure that many of us have such clear examples of the power of the gospel in our life. But for that young woman, the simple truth of what God had done for her came back at just the right time. See, the power of the gospel is to save, to give life, to rescue us spiritually and eternally. And not just at one time, but to keep transforming us more and more into the image of God. It's why Paul is able to declare at the very beginning of this whole section, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul is saying, look, the gospel is something you may be ashamed of, but I am no longer ashamed of the gospel. He's writing to Romans, right? The Roman people, for them, a cross was incredibly shameful. It was so much so that you could not crucify, which was a form of execution, you could not crucify a Roman citizen. It was reserved for slaves and foreigners, the lowest of the low. Any religion proclaiming that God had become man and died on a cross would have been absurd and disgraceful to the Romans. No one would have chosen to believe and worship a crucified Jewish peasant. And yet Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, the gospel is now my source of confidence and hope. You see, formerly for Paul, his source of pride had been in his religious zeal, his observance of the Old Testament law, his knowledge of scripture and and truth in the Old Testament. He had a superiority based on who he was as a Jew and a superiority based on what he'd done in obedience. But he says, now, now, now it's the gospel. It's what God has done for me in Christ, not what I have done. He no longer considers his Jewishness his source of pride. In fact, he has a heart and desire to reach the Gentiles. He considers his religiousness, his morality, as rubbish, as trash, as we'll see in a few weeks in Philippians 3. Look, we all turn to something to justify ourselves. We all turn to something to right ourselves in this world. We all turn to something to answer the question, why do I exist? Every other source we turn to, if it's not the gospel, leads to feelings of superiority or inferiority, because every other source is based on our own achievement and success. Either I'm succeeding in the thing I'm turning to to justify me, or I'm failing. When I'm succeeding, I feel better than all of you. When I'm failing, I feel worse than all of you. But in every other thing I turn to to justify myself, I become more and more self-focused. Only the gospel, 
Only a gospel of grace based on what God has done for me gives humility because I need it and confidence because it's already done. Only when I have that confidence and humility can I stop being so self-focused and maybe even love others and enjoy God. You see, the gospel, as Paul is talking about here, cuts the legs from all other sources of superiority and self-justification. The gospel also challenges all of our cultural values and assumptions, as it did with Paul and the Romans. And it's why Paul says the gospel is first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, or, and also to the Greeks, You see, there's two reasons why he's saying this. On the first level, he's saying it just on the basis of the way that the gospel comes out. It comes out first to the Jews. It was started in the Old Testament with the covenants and then the promises of God to save his people and then through the prophets, the promise of a Messiah and then Jesus came to reconcile humanity. And so it comes through the Jews to the Gentiles. So it's a historic thing he's talking about. But in a very other way, Paul as a Jew is talking to Romans saying, look, the gospel is for Jews and Greeks, Gentiles. And he's saying this in order to counteract Roman superiority. The Romans controlled the whole world. Their culture dominated everything. And Paul says, you know, the gospel came to the Jews first. It's not just for you superior Romans that God has come to save. But he also adds, and also to the Greek or to the Gentile, to the non-Jew, in order to counteract Jewish ethnocentricity. That idea in the first century Judaism that God had come to save them and only them. The gospel is for both. You know, every culture has sources of superiority and pride. Every subculture has them too. We see them in either the things we're aiming for, if we're going to talk about it positively, or in the sorts of people we disdain, if we're going to talk about it negatively. I remember living in England and noting how important your accent was. See, you're meant to have a home county's accent, a BBC prime minister accent. You're not meant to have a footballer's accent. That means soccer player. Or the accent of somebody from Glasgow or an Australian accent. Those are the bad ones. And so there's a pride and an arrogance and a disdain based on accents. In India, for centuries, there had been a very firm caste system that they're trying to break apart, but is still there, where the Brahmin are at the top, the highest level of caste, based on birth, not anything you've done. And the lowest, the delete, the untouchables. And of course, it still plays out today. Just this week, there's the story of two sisters who were raped and executed. And the police stood around and let it happen. Why? Because they were delete. Who cares? They're not worth anything. Every culture has these. America has a great horrid history of racism. Which while we think we've passed beyond it, if you look and talk around suburban white America, we see the problems of inner city, black on black violence is their problem, not ours. 
or even for those of us who are more progressive, is we have a, a version of classism which is based on being in the knowing class versus all those rubes and backwards people, the people that are what's wrong with America. All of us create some version of superiority and inferiority, or at least it, we're tempted to. And that's in part because we're a meritocracy. And I love being a meritocracy. It, it's the idea that you have to work hard to succeed, but anyone can do so. But the result of a meritocracy is it breeds superiority based on achievement. And so it's really just a matter of what do you look to to base your achievement? Titles, degrees, income, savings, Twitter followers, the success of your kids, whatever we use to evaluate ourselves, our lives, and in comparison to others, can easily become our cultural source of superiority and disdain. But the gospel breaks all of this down. The gospel breaks down all sources of superiority, ethnic, racial, national, religious. It challenges and overturns our culture's values, our sources of pride, because the gospel is the power to save for all. It is the power of God for salvation to all, to all, rich or poor, accomplished or people who are deep in debt, to left wing and to right wing, to male and female, to slave and free, to Jew and Greek, to all, to all who believe, that is. Paul four times talks about faith and belief in this passage. The gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe. The righteousness of God is extended from faith to faith. Righteousness is by faith. See, in the gospel, God through Christ offers us a way to be right with him. He extends his hand and we by faith receive it. If you this day have not have not trusted or believed the gospel what holds you back cultural values self-justifying pride don't wait till you're standing on the bridge for the gospel to pop into your head this day it's the day to hear and believe the gospel. I love that the gospel is by faith. The by faith part of the gospel message means it's the great leveler. Because as we'll see in a few weeks in Ephesians 2, it is by grace we have been saved through faith, not works, so that no one can boast. It is the gift of God. This means the morally very good, the religious, the successful, need faith. The bad, the self-destructive, the in-debt, the lazy, need faith. This is why the gospel is good news. It's available to all by faith. I want this church to be a gospel-driven church. And I want us as people 
to be gospel-transformed people. You know, very few of us start each day from that fixed point of who I am in Christ. Few of us allow the gospel to continually reorient and refocus us, to redirect our successes, to help us deal with our failures. Few of us know what it is to have that unshakable life of godly men and women that we've seen. Those sorts of people that regardless of circumstances, whether things are going well or they are suffering, they still have hope and joy and peace because they are gospel-driven. So this summer, let's read, let's study, let's meditate, let's memorize, let's soak on, let's chew on, let's drink, let's dwell in, let's rest in, let's build on, let's run with the gospel. We're starting with the basics. Not a football, but the cross. The basics of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And let's go back to it again and again and again. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. I pray that this would be good news to us. I pray that we would respond by faith to receive what you offer us in a life righted and the hope of eternity through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Yeah. Uh...